Welcome to Boz to the Future. Uh, this is a podcast that I started so that uh, I would have the ability to go deeper on topics. So often when I feel like I did podcasts for uh, other outlets, they wanted to go really broad, which I understand there's a lot of interesting things. But so often I found I wasn't able to dive deep enough to get into the interesting heart of problems. So we did our own one. It's called Boz to the Future, and you are listening to it now. Thank you for that. Um, I want to acknowledge we took kind of a long break after uh, Facebook Connect, now Meta Connect. Uh, we just really had to kind of hunker down and focus on getting through the quarter. So we took a bit of a break and we're coming back to you now with a very exciting guest, Thomas Reardon. Now, I'm going to do a bit of a bio and just to warn you in advance, uh, Reardon, uh, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself a little bit too, because I find a lot of times the bio misses the interesting bits. Um, but you have had a fascinating career, you know, going way back. Uh, founding member of the W3C, which I didn't know until I literally read this bio. I've been working with you for years now. A founding member contributed to the early architecture, uh, the protocols, the standards that built the web, uh, the creator of Internet Explorer project at Microsoft, uh, had a huge career, and then completely went back to school, uh, got a PhD. Now you're a computational neuroscientist, uh, under that, with your classmates at Columbia, started a new company called Control Labs, uh, which we were lucky enough to acquire and now have been working with for quite some time here at Meta. Um, and you, so somebody who's really, through many generations of technology, managed to ride the forefront. And here you are again uh, at the vanguard of something new and exciting. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about these neural interfaces that you've been pioneering. What is something that the listeners should know about you that isn't in this already impressive bio? <laughs> um, well, it should be pretty obvious that I like working on problems that can affect everyone uh, or do affect yeah. everybody. And um, you know that's why I was attracted to working on this nascent thing called the web all the way back at, I think, at the end of 93 was the first time I, I met Tim Berners-Lee and started playing around with the idea of web browsers. Um, until today, you know, I, I did. I took time off from tech work and uh, and then decided to go to college. Maybe the biggest thing that might surprise people is I never went to college when I was a kid. I was one of these <laughs> hackers, you know, hanging out 12, 13 years old around MIT and uh, just started writing code and ended up almost right out of high school going to Microsoft when I was 19. Uh, and <laughs> my whole career there, 10 years there, were done with you know, I had a, a decent amount of formal training, but what I really had was a, a bunch of time with a bunch of fearless kind of Yahoo engineers at MIT in the early 80s that were amazing mentors to me. Um, and that kind of lent me a huge, huge um, ambition to make the world a better place with technology. Man, I see a biopic coming. I'm a, I'm, this <laughs> is truly, did you, did you have to get a bachelor's after working 10 years at Microsoft? Did they make you get a bachelor's? It, that was, uh, it was ego destroying 10 years at Microsoft. Oh my God. And I went to <laughs> Columbia undergrad and, uh, I, as an old, oh, 30 years old, and I went there and I studied classics. I got far away from computer science, but, uh, yeah, I did a real four year undergrad degree <laughs> at Columbia. Man. Um, which it's in New York City, so you don't feel that out of place hanging out with sure. you know eighteen year olds and nineteen year olds in classes. It's a pretty mixed environment, but um, absolutely ego destroying to go back and reset yourself to the frame of mind of a of a college freshman. Of tremendous, and then to to do that, commit yourself to that. You're moving away from tech. You're in the classics, 
and look at us now. You, you wound your way full circle uh, back to the vanguard again. You're back under the firing line. Let's talk about this stuff. I mean, so first of all, obviously, I think for the, the kind of the, the average listener out there, they're going to need a lot of kind of education on what is what are we even talking about when we say neural interfaces. Yeah. Let's start with why does EMG on the wrist matter? Like what, what are we even talking about? What yeah. is it? And this was the, this was the approach that we took with control labs that we've really, really taken to the next level here at Meta. The idea here is to um, decode the electric signals, the activity that courses from your brain when you've made a decision to go do something, to move in the world, decode that electrical activity as it goes into your muscles and uh, use that to directly control machines. In particular, what it is is this technology called surface electromyography. It's a set of electrodes you wear around your wrist, just like you would wear a watch. And it detects um, the signals, the willful, <laughs> intentional signals that you use to drive your hand. And what we do is instead of um, paying attention to the movements that you make with your hand, the way everything you've ever done with a computer in the past mm-hmm. was done, how do you right. move? How do you type a key, move a mouse, et cetera? Instead, we just listen for the electrical activity and allow those uh, the electrical pulses of the neurons to directly control a machine. Now, you might say like, well, what good is that? I'm already moving. That's how I control a machine today. Why is this any better? And this is really kind of where I, I think we're, we're opening up you know, the next 50 years of human-computer interaction and yeah. invention. Once you move beyond movement as the means by which you interact with the machine, and you start driving things directly from neurons, so these electrical pulses from neurons, you can do things you can't do by moving. So we always use this example of imagine if you had a sixth or seventh finger that were just as skillful as the rest, and you could type with seven fingers on each hand. Uh, and that's the kind of technology we build, not just to allow you to get those kind of superhuman powers, but also in the end to do more with less. So you don't have to do a big movement and bang on keys to be able to type. You yeah. can do really small movements or almost no movement at all. And we think that this is pretty important for the next, like the generation of computers and, and devices that are coming at us in, in augmented reality and elsewhere. You said a bunch of exciting things in there, one of which we're not talking about an invasive technology. We're not talking about implants. We're talking about doing it from the surface of the skin. Yeah. It's it's willful. It's intentional. Yep. It's not mind reading. No, it's not at all. Once a, yeah. once a thought has passed the barrier of intention where you have now decided as a conscious being to take an action on it, to express it through movement, which is how we do everything in the world, that's that's when we can intercept the signal. And we could potentially do the movement without the actual movement. We can intercept the signal of the intention of movement yeah. without even having a grand gesture. Yep. yep. And uh, and I love that you put this as the forefront of the next 50 to 60 years. I'll call out for the casual listener. This has also been the forefront for the last 50 or 60 years. It's just that it hasn't moved in so long. It's been like water around us. We've yeah. completely habituated ourselves. The QWERTY keyboard isn't like some god-given natural phenomenon 40 something it's ancient you know like <laughs> like it's like and and you don't like just come out of the womb knowing it like you you're taught it in a typing class it's a weird thing you're yeah. like taking intentions of words in your brain and mapping them through a really complex motor structure into a weird sequence of your fingers moving and you get words and that is a weirdly rate limiting thing huge for how you can interact with machines yeah like the the upper bound, the fastest you could possibly be in a tight loop with a, a machine is that limit. And it gets even worse, Boz. It gets even worse because 
What happens now when you go from that full-featured keyboard you're used to on your laptop or a big computer, and now you have to do the same thing using one finger oh, yeah. at a time on a phone? It, it's not That's just right. that you go slower. It like constrains you as a person. You can't, you can't express your yeah. full agency, you your it. full will in these devices. And you and I both know it's even worse in augmented reality where we lose the direct manipulation entirely. Right. You it's know, all in, in augmented reality, yeah. now you have no, you don't, you don't have a keyboard. You don't even have a screen, a touch screen. You have no direct manipulation, man. It, it grinds. And then you have voice, which is actually a good, but voice people forget how slow voice is, by the way, like voice oh, is an incredibly yes. cumbersome medium. It's also one that's particularly um, uh, imprecise uh, relative to direct manipulation. So there's all these things. I, I, what was the keyboard that Doug Engelbart used in the Mother of All Demos? I mean, you know, do you, he, he had a, this is how, I'm saying how deep this thing is. He used to use a keyboard, right, where he had, um, he could keep his hand in place. Oh, right. His left hand yeah. in place. And he would do a sequence of taps that he had yeah. taught himself. That's right. And he really, it, it looked like a five key piano. Yeah. With like a black keys and white keys. And he had taught himself these sequences. And because, and he, it was way faster than a QWERTY keyboard. Yep. It never took on because you had to, the, and I want to get into this because the, the training was so hard. Yep. It was cumbersome yeah. to educate yourself and you couldn't just see, oh, there's a button that has the letter I want on it. Yep. <laughs> like that's an easy training facility. Um, we're going to get back to training in a second. Yeah. It's a huge issue um, and it's a huge issue that gets exposed in these neural interfaces, but let's do it. Let's do it now. This is, I mean, I think this is fascinating, right? So that, let's do the training thing. Cause I, I do think this is, again, we have, habituated ourselves to this is how computers are yeah but that's like that's that's an artifact of a time we couldn't do the types of neural interfaces that you you say are on the horizon and we've experienced what yep. it's like but yeah talk about the training one of the hardest things that you now it's like worse than qwerty i assume it's worse than learning a new keyboard layout I th so we've been at this for about what now six years and i'd say uh, we do have some learning so like to put it in the bigger context there is this field called neural interfaces and this is well I'll, I'll i'll lead this towards the training problem which yeah. is what we found over the last five six years is um you know it's hard to learn new motor skills and and we mostly talk about our work as a neuromotor interface rather than a neural interface for a really specific reason which is if you've already learned a motor task like qwerty it's a good place to start if you want to go train a neural interface so what we've decided is, and again, we've learned this the hard way with a lot of failure uh, along the way, is you have people effectively mime um, a traditional way of interacting, like moving a mouse around for 2D or typing on a keyboard. And we actually start to train the neural interfaces there and then relax the amount of movement that's required. So you go from and we can define these terms in a bit, but I, I call it, you go from articulated movements, which is what you think of today of when you can see it with a camera, for instance, to force-based movements or contractions where you don't actually see the movement, but to a neuroscience, it's happening because the muscles are active, but you don't see an articulated yeah. movement. If there, was a, if there was a force sensor underneath it, you yes, could potentially feel exactly. it. Exactly. You would feel But the movement the is not visible. Yeah. But now, because you're not moving as much, you theoretically go faster with lower error. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, with more training, that comes down to what we call a pure neural interface, which you hinted at earlier, which is you yourself can't even tell that you're moving, but the neurons in this very low threshold way are active and you still have full control. It's just like typing QWERTY, except when you look at the person, it doesn't look like they're typing QWERTY. It takes quite a bit of training to go do that. What we have learned is 
it's best to start with things that people already know how to do. And mm-hmm. then um, and this is probably the biggest difference when we move to neural, neural interfaces is flip things around so that you are no longer – you, the human, the person, are not trying to master this physical keyboard – but instead, the machine is continuously adapting to your performance. Yeah. So we put the burden on machines now to learn us rather than the other way around. And I think this is yeah, that's right. like game changing for, like I said, 50 years into the future to completely rewrite the script of how we interact with machines, to put the burden on machines to understand us and require less effort and clumsy mechanical skill from us. This I get it's really crazy a- excited about. It's a per person model. I mean, it's, and so it's, it's really, you know, your model looks nothing like mine. Yep. You know, my keyboard and your just, keyboard after, you, have no, you know, hopefully days no of usage are totally different. Yours feels better to you. You're faster on yeah, it. Totally. You make fewer errors. Um, you use it on the go in a way you would today. You got to sit down and stop and do it. Like, what if you could just, you know, take it on the go with you wherever you go? When we first met, you had a really, we had dinner. The first time we had dinner, you had, you were talking about reversals of, instead of us as humans having to adapt to this fixed keyboard, let's have the keyboard adapt to us as humans on a per person basis. You can only do that with the types of software and devices that we have now, especially as we look at wearable computers, which yep. is where we're going. Yep. Um, but you had this really fascinating thing is you, you basically, you, whenever you were talking, it took me a while to figure out you flip input and output yeah. like from what we, what conventional computer scientists would have done. Yeah. I always talk about output as human machine output. And I mean, uh, uh, human output and input as a human input problem, not the other way around. Yeah. You've come, you can, and of course it makes sense. It's very connected to this idea that we're inverting the relationship. Yeah. It's, it's now no longer like here's a machine. It accepts input and produces outputs instead. Like you have a machine that's really working on your behalf. Uh, so it's the question is like, what are your outputs and what are the machines inputs back to you? And it's human in the loop. It's closed loop training, around a specific individual person and how to make how to make them more powerful and how to have give them those powers. It's that closed loop thing that I think is so distinctive and new. And it's what really in the, the most positive implementations of AI can bring to us is when in, in some sense an AI and a person are having a conversation together. And it's a richer conversation where there's a growing understanding between both that I think uh ultimately leads to really like more joyful, I I say, I call them high agency experiences where your sense of control dramatically increases. Um, And I, like, you know, you hinted at it when you talk about wearable computers, I think that wearable devices, like these are very intimate devices we're bringing into our lives. Mm -hmm. Like you have to feel more control over them, not less control. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, you really want them to feel like your agents, your personal yeah. agents, work on your behalf. An extension of not, you and let you drive. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's funny to me, you know, it is the drive towards augmented reality, towards these wearable devices that aligns our work so well. Because as we discussed earlier, you're not going to have direct manipulation interfaces available to you in a lot of these scenarios. Right. Um, but of course, the vision that you have, and I think we share for neural interfaces over the long term is much bigger than that. Yeah. Um, I, the, the one I always give my family is I was like, I've never, never once found a great microwave oven interface, not one time <laughs> in history. It's like and a I'm fight to do every such, time. <laughs> it's, I'm trying to do such a simple thing. I just, <laughs> I just want, you know, two minutes, 50% power. How hard can this be? And it's, an, you know, it's impossible. It's the kind of thing where um, if you had a universal and again, I'll use your language, a universal output, yeah. a universal system for you expressing your intentions yeah. in a way that is 
specific and not effortful on your part. Man, every remote in your house goes away. Uh, every interface on every device that you have goes this away. Is, I get really – we don't talk about this much publicly, but I get so excited about about the idea of like wearable and intimate computers being the way you interface with the – I call it the ambient computing environment. Every yeah, internet of things, things device, et cetera, rather than you learning a different interface every time, sort of you are the interface and ultimately of this whole like this sea of IoT devices around you. And I actually think – I really do think augmented reality – is the entry point for a really, truly pervasive kind of digital existence, like where all these devices weave together. It's not just the the virtual and augmented reality that yep. gets me excited. It's the, how you then anchor it back into the real deal, that microwave on the counter or the light switch on the wall or the Nest thermostat. Those are real things to drive. Yeah. It's the digital back to the physical. The physical yeah, world yeah. is just adapt, adapting as a consequence of this. Yeah. It's your talking point, but I'm saying you've described this as like having the force. It is like in the in the physical world. Yeah. You know, just like an intention that you hold and are able to express that affects change in the physical world. Yeah. There's this we have this abstraction we talk about on the HCI, the human computer interaction side of our work. We talk about a lot of things being direct interactions. You've you've mentioned that multiple times. Um and uh, it, we might call them hand-object interactions, like you use mm -hmm. your hand to go manipulate something. I get excited about neural interfaces because they're so virtualized that you really get to explore action at a distance, and maybe yeah. in Einstein's sense, spooky action at a distance, <laughs> right, uh, right. where I want to be able to do things I can't actually do in the real world. I want to – like. Like I said, just kind of like look at the TV over there and do an invisible gesture to change the volume. Or really, I want to be an augmented reality and and you know have an interaction with Yoda where I'm lifting yeah. things off at a distance. I don't want to walk up to them and move them. I want to totally. feel like that manipulation at a distance in this kind of virtual three-dimensional playground is like having the force in Star Wars. And I, I can't imagine something that could feel more in a weird way, embodied, but yeah. potent than those senses, those sensations. You put it so well earlier. I, an analogy I sometimes use, you said you, you just feel the limitations on a mobile keyboard. There are things that like, I, you know, you'll get emails or text messages like, no, I have to go to the, the computer to really express myself with the full richness that I want to bring to this. I feel the same way when I enter VR. I feel like a step function more powerful again. I, yep. I control space. I control yep. time. Yep. Um, it's, it's a wonderful feeling to bring. I want to talk about the challenges. So, you know, first of all, it's, it's so fascinating to me, the idea that we have this excess neural, uh, neuromotor capacity, basically, yeah. that we can kind of tease into. It's, it's a wonderful, the idea that the humanity has latent extra power that we haven't fully tapped into is cool. There's so many challenges here. I want to talk about two of them. The first one is the technological challenges, and the second one is kind of the, the ethical, moral responsibility challenges. Yeah. On the technical challenges, what are the big... So here we are. We're talking about it. We're so excited about it. The listener is with us. What are the blockers from here to there? We talked about training. That's one of them. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to talk about sensors? Like, What are the big challenges between here and, and there? I would say there's two buckets of challenges. One is, frankly, taking something out of the lab that works reasonably well in a very controlled lab environment and making it work for everyone in the real world. And I mean like seven and a half billion people ought to have the same, be capable of having the same experience, no special conditions. Um, and that means hardware that is really, really robust that you could wear all day long. Um, that turns out to be pretty dang hard. Like you got to lean into absolutely cutting edge devices, cutting edge electronics, at the same time as really cutting edge machine learning techniques that are 
resilient to all this kind of crazy noise that occurs around you and your body. Um, yeah. So just basic, hard, deep signal science. You don't want you don't want to screw up every time you walk past like a security center. Every That'd time you bad. walk through like an in, you walk past infrared, like just yeah, just start keys start firing off. It's no good. Yeah, it's no good. Um, and not to mention the diversity of, of humanity, like just the diversity of, of bodies, of people, of yeah, of people of different of body shapes, just, et cetera. We're not all built the same way, but can we have things that are like so exquisitely well tunable, not tuned? Like so many times in technology, we build things based on some kind of optimal person, optimal something we yeah, think exists out yeah. there. But we don't build resilience into the technology so that it then adapts to real people in the real world. And again, I feel like this isn't something we've designed in after the fact. It was just part of the exploration of neural interfaces. You've, you've hinted at yeah. it strongly a couple of times because they are deeply personalized with these kind of affordances that wrap themselves around the way your neural signals work. And then you, as you use the neural interface, the way we've been designing it, it just wraps closer and closer and closer to the real you and the, the you that you feel the most comfortable performing. Um, yeah. In a different direction, I, you know, let's get to a really important one. Obviously, with everything that we're doing in Meta, we're introducing new functionality. Uh, what we've, if we've learned anything from the last ten or fifteen or twenty years of technology development, uh, technology is not neutral. It has an impact, sometimes a disproportionate impact. What are the big things to be careful of? It, ways in which we need to be responsible in how we develop and deploy this technology. I mean, I think number one is you know we have a whole framework we call responsible innovation that we use. Um, and the heart of it is to not surprise people, like to, right. to tell people what we're doing, when we're doing it, if we're collecting neural data on the device, tell them like why, what it's for, yep. how it's going to be used, um, and, and sort of have a full moral contract with with people who, who want to use it, acknowledging get value from it. I, I mean, I'm, as a scientist and somebody from the scientific community, I feel an obligation to bring this back into the scientific community and engage mm -hmm. in uh, uh discussions about this. I don't think we do that enough in academic science about the ethical implications of our work. We don't do it nearly enough in academic science. Mm. So I'm I'm I think the burden on this commercial side inside a company is even higher, but I'm kind of thrilled that we're in those kinds of conversations. Uh, one, one of the other parts of this is obviously we expect neural interfaces actually have the tremendous power to be very adaptive. Like they really could include communities in uh, digital manipulation who who currently struggle with that. Uh, and, and so there is a tremendous power for, for good um, with this technology. Uh, at the same time, one of our other responsible innovation principles, you talked about never surprising people, one of our other ones is consider everyone. Um, and and that's, that's relevant here as well, isn't it? It's not just relevant. I think it's, it's kind of, it's the heart of why neural interfaces, I think, are a force for good. Um, yeah. Which is, you immediately broaden the pool of addressable people, the people who get to use this technology. Um, so, for instance, people who might be struggling with any kind of motor dysfunction, you know, a movement disorder, which it turns out to be a lot of people, and especially in an aged population, it tends to be a really large number of people. Because the way the interface works, it wraps around you. It's not about, you know, can you type on this keyboard exactly like every other person who types, but you know, is there enough neural signal for, for the algorithms to work such that you and the machine can come to an agreement and you can be proficient in this? We no longer have to, not for every disorder, but for a lot of uh, disorders, like we don't have to do this work upfront designing for that population. We get to invite them along from the beginning. Uh, so much happens in the technology world where 
and anybody who's who's come out of the disabled community or you know uh, unsighted community or or deaf community will tell you like they, they kind of get added on at the last moment in so many technical you know innovations and evolutions revolutions I should say um, what happens if they're like considered from day zero if they're brought into right. the tent from day zero and sometimes you do that because just the technology enables that you don't have to kind of design for it later and come back to it and that's been a, a big one for us you know other people have probably heard the curb cut analogy where you know curb cuts, were initially there for folks who had motor disabilities, needed a wheelchair to get up and off the curb on a sidewalk, but they have huge value for all of us. Like yeah, everybody totally. likes it. Once you have them, you're like, boy, I wish we all had that all the time. <laughs> uh, right. And I and I do hope the neural interfaces go down that path. We started this world of neural interfaces, you know, the real serious explosion work happened. It started about 15 years ago, really focusing on folks in the disabled community or in the neuropathology world. And in, now we're able to actually like redirect this towards everybody and realize like, oh, they're, they can come along. Yeah. We don't have to go back and try to get uh, those fo- pe- folks into the tent with us. That's part of the beauty of solving it for seven and a half billion individual unique people is once you've solved that problem, it's solved for everybody. It's not, a, you know, you, you know, there's, there's obviously challenges uh, that we will face that are novel as we get into different populations or subpopulations, but uh, you really are, you're building something that's truly general. It, which is the inverse of what we've done before. We, we've built the most specific, specific version we could and yep. told everyone, you need to adapt to this. And if you can't, you know, we'll try to do our best later on. Um, it's, it's a very different approach and it's, it's more fundamental. I do think machine learning is the key to unlocking that across a huge number of things, by the way, not just interfaces. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the key to unlocking a lot of things that need to personalize to an individual. Um, and we just now have the sensors and the data computation locally on device to be able to do these types of things in a tight enough loop to actually do it. It's very exciting. And I think it's going to change, continue to change how people interface with machines. Again, you go back to MIT uh, and the writings that you saw there in the 50s and 60s around the human and computer interaction. The vision was always that we'd have this, uh, you know, a mind melt. We'd have a really, a great unity of intention being expressed by, uh, me as a person, and intention being understood by the machine. Um, and we're coming back around to some of those concepts that we'd kind of lost track of in a, a great explosion uh, of popularity for computing, but that was very much in a different model than that, uh, by, by, by necessity. Uh, we're, this is such a fun topic. I want to uh, tell the audience, by the way, this stuff is coming, uh, what I've been saying for a long time uh, is it's sooner than you think, but it's still pretty far away, Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, and it's going to come in bits. It's going to come like one bit at a time. Like you're going to get, you know, first thing you'll be able to do is control something like a single button click, like yep. you can click a button and then over time it's going to grow. So uh, I do want to set expectations. Call it the perfect button. <laughs> the perfect button. One that requires, you know, almost no effort at all. Just a thought uh, and intention even. Let me switch to our second deep dive. I always try to do a second deep dive in these things. I've got to do this one on careers because, again, you have had such a an unusual career arc. You've had multiple careers. You've reinvented yourself a number of times. This is my when I do these Instagram um, AMAs. People can ask me anything. By far, the number one question I get most often is career advice kinds of questions from people from all walks of life, all over the place, trying to figure out, hey, how can I go from where I am to being in a place where I can have a big impact. Um, you just got such a tremendous story. You've done it more than once. Not many people can say they've done that uh, more than once. What advice do you give to people um, who are starting out anywhere 
and are trying to get to a greater impact? Thanks for asking. Uh, <laughs> I actually do think about this a lot. Um, and I have had, I, I think of myself as having two careers of, of some impact and uh, feel blessed to have been able to, to do that. Um, I have, a, have an aphorism I use, which is who before what? Um, mm -hmm. I just I spoke at Columbia a couple weeks ago at uh, the Honor Society for the induction, and I was telling kids, like, don't get so wrapped up about what you work on. <laughs> Think about who yeah. you're going to work with. Use that. If there's a big decision coming up, where you're going to go to school, go to grad school, your first job, think really hard and convince yourself it's who you want to work with and let mm -hmm. the work play out from there. I will tell you, when we started Control Labs, um, I started it with Patrick Kaifosh, my co-founder and, and another uh, fellow from Columbia, two other neuroscientists. Um, and we didn't know what we were going to do at first. <laughs> what I knew was Patrick was the smartest person I'd ever met. Tim was an incredibly effective, great colleague at Columbia. And I just said, I, I got to go work with these people somehow, some way. I don't want to do the regular path through grad, you know, post docs and onward. So let me just do this where I follow who. Um, and I feel like greatly rewarded for that. Um, just immensely rewarded for that. I think if you've got a curious mind and you're doing an AMA with Boz, you probably have a very curious mind. And <laughs> the problem isn't trying, like selecting what you're going to work on. It's finding awesome people to do it with. And I, I, that's really how we started control labs. We didn't have a crisp idea about the work we wanted to do. I knew the two people I wanted to do it with Patrick Kaifosh, my co-founder and Tim scientists from Columbia, like phenomenal thinkers, but people I also got to be shoulder to shoulder with for six years. And, uh, I just knew like, these are the people I can, I could work on almost anything with these people. We'll make it interesting. Like we'll find yeah. something interesting here and, uh, and we'll drive it to ground. And you, like you said earlier, you know, you talked about having had great mentors at, at MIT, people who, who guided you up, uh, you know, even while you were in high school, getting to the point where you're able to, to kind of hack enough to, to be at Microsoft yeah. early on. So just finding those connections to people. I, one, this one thing I do love about the internet, by the way, some of the earliest, um, and close friends of mine, early Facebook employees, Chris Putnam, Marcel Laverday, high school, uh, you know, maybe college dropouts, um, but, and didn't, had never met in person com actually, actually came together to hack literally to do a hack on Facebook. It was like kind of a fun, like a harmless one. It was a JavaScript C uh, CSS vulnerability. Um, and it changed everyone's profiles. Looked like it was MySpace. And I love Dustin Moskovitz, our CTO at the time. We figured out who it was. We figured out who had uh, started this CSS kind of exploit and he just messaged him. He's like, "Come work for us. You know, if you're if you're, if you're good enough to do this, you're good enough to come work for us." Those guys did. I, I, if I recall correctly, they hadn't met. They they knew each other online. They hadn't met in person until they joined uh, the company. Um, but I, this is one thing I love about the internet: is it creates the space for yeah, these. That's how I met Tim Berners Lee in the first place, way back at the yeah. end of '93. <laughs> yeah, just like it's, that. it's such one of the, the the earliest. Well, that's a beautiful bootstrapping story. It's that's almost like the cartoon of you know the animal holding itself up by its actual bootstraps. <laughs> you're kind of wondering as a physics problem. Uh, for me, for those as, who were, as yeah. one aside, I, I CSS is like my baby. I did the very first implementation of CSS that was like a, oh, a project we cooked up at W3C, and I did the first version of CSS in in IE3. So it's really, uh, I think a, a lot of people are going to be coming for you after that comment. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, it's true. Again, you, you just, it's so impressive. Uh, you're what you, what you've managed to accomplish. You've had a tremendous career and, and you're still driving so hard. I mean, we, again, we're so, so lucky to have you. 
Um, I, I gotta tell, I'll add my own layer of advice. I always tell people is just find the steepest learning curve. Yeah. You know, whatever, find, just find the thing that's the steepest gradient. Uh, if you look at my career, I just like, I had no business doing the job that I'm in now work reality labs. I'd never built hardware. I'd never done any of the types of types of things I've done here. Um, but, uh, but just like the steepest possible gradient where I'm going to challenge the most learning the most. I kind of like in my career, and this is actually a, an analogy that I've realized does not work on the young people anymore, which I'm bummed about. Maybe Cobra Kai will help. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I, like Daniel's son from Karate Kid, you know, he like spends a lot of time like painting the fences and waxing the car. And at some point he figures out he knows karate. That's how I feel. Like I just spent a lot of time doing like a lot of jobs that were hard and really felt hard to me. And then later on, I was like, oh, like I've learned a bunch of skills along the way that have made me <laughs> more capable. Um, okay. We're going to do a quick fire round here. What is a piece of media that you're consuming right now? A podcast or a book or a show? Like what's a piece of media that you're engrossed in? The Expanse. Okay. I love I, it. Yeah, I got absolutely. converted to it this, this last couple of months. Love it. And I love there's a, there's a science fiction is, is having a real renaissance right now. There's great science fiction out there. The Expanse is a beautifully produced piece. If yeah. those aren't following, it's on Amazon Prime, I think. Yep. Um, uh, what number one thing you're looking forward to 2022? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> Working again in person, like at yeah, scale. Good. I love it. I've had some taste of it this fall. Unfortunately, uh, we're kind of on the beginning of this Omicron wave. Uh, we'll get past it. But I can't wait to work with people again in person. Um, it, it it drives me. As cerebral as I am in my daily life, I just thrive on in person at the whiteboard argument and collaboration. I love it, man. And you're at the right, you're at the right company for it now. And you're, you're in New York city control labs was based in New York. What's your favorite bike route? I bike all, everywhere I can in the city. I, there's almost no day <laughs> that I'm not on my bike, even a cold day like today. Um, I'm usually like up and down the West side. Uh, uh, there's a bike way along the Hudson river all the way down to, to, you know, the freedom tower to world trade center and all the way up to Columbia and back. That's my like, almost daily ride. Not as for exercise. I just, I like to commute everywhere and New York's gotten a lot safer. So there's bike lanes everywhere. So it's a great place to bike as a commuter and fantastic uptake, uh, uptake of biking here. So I'm a huge believer of that. The New, yeah, the New York tourism bureaus sending the check in, in the mail already. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you for joining me. Now, normally I, I hype people's social media handles. You don't, you're not a huge social get, you do have a lot of open roles do you want to talk about the roles that you want to hire for because i feel like we may with this uh with this podcast interest some of the people you want to reach um yeah look we are looking for the best ai thinkers in the world in particular those who who've who've done computational neuroscience or or related yeah. fields coming out of the worlds of physics and and uh where physics intersects with with machine learning uh we're really really interested in uh, folks Again, who might have may have a background in like ASR and speech recognition. It turns mm -hmm. out that these kinds of sound signals have a real uh, uh, overlap of of the way you attack them. It, it's really similar to what we're doing uh, in neuroscience with neural signals now. These complex biological time series signals. So, um, really, the best thinkers and doers in the world of machine learning, in particular as it intersects with real world time you know, time series signals. We've built a phenomenal team of machine learning experts and neuroscientists. Uh, I believe right now we're the largest private neuroscience group in the world. 
Um, the problem we're working on is about as big as it gets, so that makes some sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it checks out. And then at the same time, we also go really deep into kind of novel new human-computer interactions. So we're looking for HCI researchers, HCI experts, doers, engineers, people with real high risk tolerance uh, who want to have crazy high impact. And uh, I could, you know, the, the folks that we attract now have worked on you know, every important product you've, you've experienced in the last 10, 15 years, they've touched in one way or another, and they're repurposing their skills towards this neural interface revolution. You should, you, you, you got a third career ahead of you as a salesman. I tell you, whether it's yeah. New York city or, or control labs <laughs> roles, you got a real opportunity for a third, a third way, a third wave when this one uh, plays out. Uh, great to have you. Obviously, uh, couldn't be more thrilled with the work. I love getting to work with you. Uh, Reardon is, is a, a true pioneer, and we just we didn't even touch on that. You're right. The human, the the closed loop, the visuals that you get back, and the the haptic feedback that you get back, the audio feedback that you get back as a consumer is a critical part of closing that training loop. It's an a part we didn't even get into. That's a big how the loop completely connects. So uh, we'll have to save that for a future podcast, maybe with some of the team on that. Thank you all for joining us. This is Boss to the Future. You are already listening to it, but for some reason, I'm compelled to include that you can listen to it wherever you listen to find podcasts. You can leave me thoughts and feedback at Boz Tank on both Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see you next time.